Transformationist is dedicated to real stories of transformation and the insights and actions that make it possible. Our guests share from their own stories the strategies and experiences that can help you shape transformation in your own life. Whether you are changing your mind, responding to change, or designing a life different from what you have right now, my hope is that these stories will inspire you and help you on the way. Hi, I'm Tash McGill, and welcome to The Transformationist. One of the consistent themes that you'll hear as you listen to The Transformationist is my love of food, hospitality, and the creativity that goes hand in hand with that. And one of the things about that industry is that you meet and encounter people who have incredible insight, creativity, and a natural way of living with a thoughtful and design-oriented approach to life. And one of those people is Al Keating. He is currently CEO of Coffee Supreme, a New Zealand-born coffee brand that's now gone overseas. Um, But he's much more than just a CEO. In fact, I'm not sure he would describe himself as a businessman type at all. But welcome to The Transformationist, Al. Thank you, Tash. Good to be here. So uh, did you ever imagine that you would uh, be rocking around the world calling yourself a CEO? No, actually, I never would have um, thought I'd end up in these shoes. Um, not, Not as a youngster, not in the industry I've worked in. Yeah, it's it definitely was sprung on me a little while ago. <laughs> okay, so tell us a little bit about that journey into into how you arrived at um, at this kind of leadership of a business that is um, obviously booming. You know, in New Zealand we love our coffee, but Coffee Supreme has actually gone overseas and is increasing its global footprint. Um, so, how did you end up in that kind of business leadership role? Um, I, I largely. Uh, on my feet, have a habit of landing on my feet. Um, friends have laughed at, at me about that over the years. <laughs> so I was really fortunate years ago to be thrown an opportunity to grow a Wellington coffee company into Auckland, which was supreme. And I was working at another roaster at the time here in Auckland called Atomic and um, had become a little bored, I think, with maybe just not enough challenge and it was a great little business but I'd sort of run out of puff there so the founder of Supreme uh, who I'd gotten to know through the industry in New Zealand which is very collegial and we all get along really well he said hey I'm looking for somebody to set up Supreme in Auckland so um, have a think about it and I went home and had a thought think about it and I remember talking to my wife about it, and this is going back 15 years now, and I uh, said, you know, so I'm going to think of maybe putting some friends forward who might be good for that role. <laughs> that just right there sounds like the classic Kiwi job interview. <laughs> I have a think about it, and then the response of, oh, I wonder who I know who might be good yeah, for that. Well, that was exactly how it went. And, of course, Beck, who's, um, you know, my number one fan, luckily, said, oh, you, Al, you div, why don't you do it? And so I went back to them and said, yes, I'll do it. Um, and it started there, really. I was pretty much a one-man band, a one-person band, I should say. I've um, had that beaten out of me at Supreme. So I, I was a one-person band and grew it really from, uh, I think we had one or two customers at the time, to growing a team 
and a team of really talented people and opening a hospitality site that did wonders for us back then, uh, which was called Good One and had massive influence for us in the city as something a little out of the box. And I had a huge part to play in that, which was tons of fun and really just grew in, I guess you could say favour in some ways with the founder and with the senior team at Supreme and worked my way from being the Auckland guy, which was pretty much on my business card for years, to uh, leading sales and eventually wrangling the brand off him. And that was about 10 years ago when I said, hey, maybe maybe we should take the brand off you. And he was very happy for us to do that. So I led that team as well as sales. And eventually I remember having lunch with uh, our founders, Chris Dillon and Maggie Wells. And we sat at a little place in Rich, uh, on Richmond Road that used all press. And he sort of beat around the bush for a lot of lunch, which is um, not unlike him with stories and, you know, going down rabbit holes. And eventually he got up to go to the bathroom and Maggie leaned in and said, just while Chris is in the bathroom, Al, he wants you to take over. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so he came back from the bathroom and sat down and wondered what we were talking about and Maggie sort of tipped him off. I've, I've already told him. So that's really how it happened. It was very unceremonious and um, I was really blown away because at the time I was 35 and he said, hey, I'd really love you to take over running Supreme. So that's how it started. What did you like about it? About about running Supreme, about being CEO? Yeah. Um, what did I like about it? It's a good question. I didn't see a lot of change in my role. It's a Wellington-based company and I was still living in Auckland. So I loved about it traveling. I've always loved traveling and I've been very fortunate in coffee to have seen many, many countries. Mm. So that's one thing I really loved about it. I love people the most, and I love working with really great people and spotting talent and um, giving them opportunities. So that's something that I've really loved about being CEO. I love, um, I guess, being in a position of influence, which might sound like a bit of a dick thing to say, but... Only in New Zealand where we've got a problem with tall poppies. Totally, yes. So everywhere else in the world, people are going, yeah, mate, that's great. Yeah, I know. I know. You know, when you travel in the US, people introduce themselves as with titles. And I always say, I, I work for a coffee company in New Zealand. So that's just classic Supreme, you know, or classic New Zealand. It is very much a culture of Supreme too. We're just one of a big gang and you all just muck in. So... Um, I, I, going back to my point, I have been very fortunate to have influence and I've recognised that I have it and take great responsibility with that. So that's one of the things I've loved is that I have the ability to empower people and let them do stuff that they would love to do as well. Which sounds really exciting. I mean, that, that to me sounds like if you land in a role like that, you're able to be operating in your sweet spot. But there's an interesting kind of t plot twist in your story of being CEO, which is then uh, a, a few, couple of few years back, you decided you didn't want to be the CEO anymore. 
and yet you're still the CEO today. So let's wander into that journey a little bit. Um, From what you just described, you are doing a role that you enjoy, that offers you a lot of things that you find fulfilling. When did you decide you didn't want to be CEO anymore or did that decision happen to you? Uh, It didn't happen to me, but I was very happy to be a part of that decision. And in fact, I initiated that when I said to the board, hey, look, I am drowning a little bit. A lot of people, a lot of email, a lot of admin, a lot of reporting. I am a creative with a very short attention span. I have the nickname at Supreme is 80% Al, <laughs> which I think uh, is an embellishment, to be honest. I'd probably call it more like 40% Al. But which, and what does that refer to in particular? That refers to my um, inability to finish what I start. Right, mm. okay. So, yeah, you get to 80%, lose interest. <laughs> yeah. It's great right. being in a team, though, because, you know, you've got some amazing 20 percenters around me. So I said to the board, hey, look, I'm kind of drowning and I don't feel like I'm doing any more what I'm best at. And I don't feel like you as a board are getting bang for buck from me because I'm just so stuck to a desk or dealing with with so many people and so much sort of incoming stuff. They talked about hiring a PA for me, but I found that very you know, like you say, in New Zealand, it's pretty awkward to have a PA. So, and in an industry like coffee, where it's very accessible and we're all just one of the gang, it just felt a little, a little flashy. So I said, hey, I'd really love to um, step out of this role. It happened at the time that we were merging the Australian business, which is about 15 years old, and the New Zealand business. We were also looking to expand into Japan. So it kind of all came at a pretty good time where we were merging the businesses and we had decided that in order to grow internationally, we're probably going to have to have grown up in that role. Um, So I was very happy to be a part of recruiting a new CEO. And this was, um, when was that? Sort of end of 2016, I think. Yeah, by which stage I'd been CEO for about five years. So we began the process of recruiting for a CEO. So what was your new job description going to be? Were you just going to move sideways, move backwards? Like how do you, when you're somebody who has such influence and leadership in a company, and obviously you don't want to lose that, but as you tell the story, it sounds to me like there's a wrestle there with kind of a predefined box of what CEO style leadership needs to be you know where it's deep into the financials and the reporting and lots of numbers and admin and all of that kind of stuff so how do you how do you keep that that leadership and influence which has you know by that stage become iconic and also intrinsic to the supreme brand but also you know find a role for yourself that's fulfilling and not managing finance yeah, that's a good question. So what I pitched was that I, because I, at the time I was CEO, I was still overseeing the brand. So I was still brand manager or head of brand, whatever you call it. So I proposed that I would work really closely with the new CEO in supporting him. It was a dude. Uh, I'm not making the assumption that it was a man. <laughs> yes. Good clarification. Um, and that I would continue to oversee the brand and oversee our art department, which uh, was a 
also a very effective and influential little part of the business. So I gave myself the title of head of brand and stepped sideways into that and continued to travel and be a part of the business and part of the senior leadership team. Life of Riley, mate. Life of Riley, I know. You very cleverly <laughs> designed yourself into the role of CEO and then mm. redesigned yourself into something quite sideways. It's funny, you know, I set a goal uh, years ago that I wanted to make myself redundant and irreplaceable. And funnily enough, I kind of managed to tick that box. <laughs> Which, I mean, it's great. It's great to set goals and achieve them. Do you think other people perhaps are annoyed by by that little goal coming to fruition? I don't know. It was, <laughs> it was a joke, and maybe you're digging into something I don't know about. But um, no, it was a joke, and so it just sort of came up. It was probably a little after the fact that I thought, "Gee, I've actually achieved that goal. That's great. I've worked my way out of my." immediate sort of responsibilities but have remained in a position of leadership and influence in the business so yeah it was it was good and you know the new ceo started he came from craft beer and was a very talented guy and we all thought this is going to be so good we're going to learn so much from this guy he's been part of growing new zealand businesses internationally very clever super lovable amazing storyteller he could do the best impersonations of anybody and there was never a meeting that there wasn't an impersonation of Billy Connolly or um, Jerry Seinfeld or, you know. So he was tons of fun. The business is really big and really complicated. We're quite a complex beast, a lovable circus, somebody described us as. Um, and I've always described Supreme as a very talented bunch of amateurs. Um, not speaking about everybody in the business, but there's some people who will be grinning to hear that. <laughs> so it, it was a really fun time and I continued to do my thing and oversee the brand and grow internationally and was very involved in Japan with an amazing team who got that off the ground. Uh, but over the 18 months of our new CEO, I think the size and the complexity of the business just became too much. Mm. Yeah. So you're now the CEO again. So I'm back Back in CEO, so I went from CEO to non-CEO and then perhaps reluctantly back into CEO, but in the process of uh, the former CEO resigning the board and I had many conversations. I even had some really good conversations with people outside the business and in other industries and sought some good advice and went to some people that I trust. And we basically, between the board and myself, restructured what CEO could look like mm. based on my strengths and my weaknesses, really. And there are other very um, competent people in the senior leadership team at Supreme who I said I will do it if I can do it together with them. So we restructured my role as CEO to remove from me um, a lot of the reporting, financial stuff. I am fascinated and love the financial side, but it is not my skill set. Uh, so we have an amazing guy called Jesse, who's our commercial director, and he does that. And operationally, which is not my strong suit either, which is nuts and bolts and putting shit in boxes and getting it done, 
uh, that's overseen globally. We say globally. There's, we're in three countries. I don't know if you can say that's global. Group. We'll say the group. Asia Pacific. Asia Pacific, yes. Uh, and so that's overseen by a, a dude called Heath Cater who's been in the business for 21 years and knows every detail of the business. So he's the guy for that. So the three of us really are effectively the executive team. And the board said we still reserve the right to appoint a CEO. You can only have one one captain in the wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> so what do you think the business, let's start with the business. What do you think the business learned in that period of time moving from, you know, the the creative leader model to then a more traditional CEO and then with the movement back? What did the business learn what have you been able to apply there? We we learnt that we are there are three really three um, legs to our stool, if you like, at Supreme. A huge so the three things for us really are culture and product and brand. And we learnt that our culture is quite unique, and the coffee industry is really unique. It is a product that sits alongside other products. Like let's take a cafe for example. Your favorite cafe, you will definitely be able to tell me straight away whose coffee they use. Mm-hmm. You will struggle to tell me whose milk they use, mm-hmm. even, even though it is one of the most you know, uh, visible things in their business, whose bread they use, whose produce they use. There's, you know egg brands in New Zealand, but you wouldn't know whose eggs were used in your favorite cafe. Coffee, however, is super visible, and uh, it's a really, it's an amazing sort of partnership that a wholesale cafe has with their coffee supplier. That comes down to culture and a really good cultural fit, and so you partner with people who share that cultural fit, and so that is a really key part of our business. And at Supreme, we have a lot of people, and culture is what keeps us together keeps us pointing in the same direction and all holding hands most of the time. (laughs) So what we learned from that was, yes, you can bring in people who've done it before on a big scale or who've been through the corporate sort of route and all of that, but if they can't fit culturally and it can't enhance the culture, then it's always going to be really difficult to Mm. get, get those, you know, those cogs to engage. So we learned that it is, our culture is something that we should nurture. We can still improve, and we're not saying we've arrived and we, we can't improve. We definitely can improve, but product is something we do amazingly well with, with the best people in the business. Our brand is something that we protect really fiercely and invest a lot of resource into. And culture equally is something that we need to protect and resource. So I think we learnt, we learnt that. Mm. And if you shake culture, it really can be quite damaging. Yeah, and I think culture can be challenging because it's almost an invisible part of the business until something's not in alignment, and then it becomes really visible. And then you have a choice, I think, like, you know, that internal conflict can either be a pathway to realigning culture and making it stronger, or it can be, you know, destructive. It can end up having having a really negative impact on your business. And I think that's true in families as well, you know? Like, conflict is just a pathway to let's get back on the same page. 
Hi, sorry for the brief interruption, but you're hopefully used to them by now. This is just a simple request to say, if you have not yet, jump along to thetransformationist.org and join the sign-up list because coming from next week, there's going to be some exclusive content just for people who are subscribed to that email newsletter. I'd love to see you over there. Meanwhile, back to the episode. Um, So what for you personally were the changes or the things that you've learned or maybe a different approach that you're taking to this role of CEO in the second time round? Um, being, uh, being a CEO can be very isolating. They say, there's an old cliche, it's lonely at the top, which I always sort of scoffed at. But I've come to learn it is very lonely, not because there's only one of you, but because you can't complain we have this sort of mantra at Supreme that you never complain down, you only complain up. And so if you're the CEO, you really run out of people to complain to. And complaints are not bad. Complaints get shit happening. Mm. Um, especially when they when you're focused on solving a problem. And the complaints are good for that. So um, for me personally, I learnt that I really need to be part of a team. I function best in a team. I'm a team player. You know, even the 80% hour thing is very, very true for me. So I am doing it differently this time with a really supportive team. And we have each other's backs. We communicate daily. We stand in when that person is being talked about in their absence. We have a really amazing thing there. So that's something that I'm doing differently. I am also, because of that, being freed up to focus on what I'm really good at which is big picture stuff and not detail. I can't do detail. I, I don't even notice it. <laughs> so, unless it's bad. Uh, <laughs> I think, and we should come back and talk about that. Like sure. noticing the, the small details when it's not good. <laughs> I do notice details. I shouldn't say that I'm not a details person, but I don't love working on them. Mm-hmm. So I love it when they're working, but I, I'm, I'm not, yeah. So I, I'm very big picture and very, um, fast moving and I move on Uh, so I do love shiny things and working in a team of people who have commercial and operational is a really amazing outcome. That's pretty cool. So let's talk about what it is like um, and how you are extending your uh, creative footprint. I feel like creative is such an overused word but it is really when you break it down it's about the process of being in the well it's about the process of making and creating and uh, whether that's an idea or a product or a thing what is that like for you and how are you extending and and growing in that now in this new iteration of business leadership um yeah i think your comments are very true about creativity and creative people i think well one part of that is i think that creative and craft have been blended together and they're such different things. So often craftspeople might be referred to as creative because they create things, but craftspeople are finishers and details people and creative people have often no desire to see something finished. They love to create and start, but they don't necessarily want to see it finished. So uh, let's say I wanted to create a new um, orange juice I would dream up ways of sourcing oranges and juicing oranges and all of that. 
I have no interest in putting it in bottles and putting it on shelves, right? Yeah, okay. But a craftsperson will want to take that orange juice all the way through to a finished product and it's not finished or even worth doing until it's for sale on a shelf. So that's the difference between, I think, craft and creative. I'm very creative and <laughs> that sounds ridiculous, I know. You don't say that in New Zealand, eh? I'm so creative. Sorry. Um, Half I'm, the audience I, I, of this I, podcast I, is, is international, <laughs> so you're fine. <laughs> Well, that's lucky. Uh, I'm a creative thinker, which means that I look at things differently or I think laterally. I love finding a different word or seeing something different. I don't have all of the ideas. Creative people don't invent stuff. They just see stuff and help make it happen, right? I think Steve Jobs said something about that. You don't it's not about creating everything. It's about identifying stuff as it floats past. There's nothing new. You just see a different way of doing it or you have an idea. It's not necessarily your idea. It might be somebody else's idea, but you see an application for it. So that's definitely my thing. I love um, sparking off other people and throwing something different in the mix and thinking really big towards where we want to be. Mm. I mean, it can be meaningless if you don't have a destination in mind, right? You'd have a great holiday, but you'd probably never arrive somewhere. I'm interested to know, uh, and there's probably not enough objective evidence in your experience or mine to be able to uh, to say this definitively, but do you think in an organisation or a company like Supreme where you're actually making a product and dealing with other people in the business in a day-to-day sense, the relationship you talked about between the coffee wholesaler and the cafe and then the customer, you are so close to your end of supply chain customer. Do you think there's an unfair advantage in the ability to create or innovate or think about new products for a creative leader in a business that is in fact making product than say, you know, an accounting firm somewhere over in? Yeah, sure. Uh, Yeah, that's a good question. We do, we're very fortunate in our industry that it's so attached to cool and hip and now uh, and for years, coffee has been really, you know, on the table in the centre of all of those conversations. No creative conversation happens without coffee or beer on the table. Uh, quick hat tip to uh, uh, Garage Project. Garage Project. There we go. Yeah. And the uh, the Bliss Lager. You mm. can check out photographs of this delicious beverage and maybe a review um, on the Transformationist later. Yes. So coffee is very present in in all of those things and yeah maybe accounting is not not so sexy but you look at people like zero they've totally reinvented accounting uh it's a an amazing brand from wellington that's taken it to the world but yes you're right um we're very fortunate we're in an industry where we have uh, a really diverse fan base because people from the age of 16 to you know 96 drink coffee and love it and it's part of their day so we have amazing access to those people. I think we're very fortunate at Supreme to be resourced enough to explore a lot of this stuff. So we, um, we're lucky that we get to make other cool things that help add value to our brand and help people connect with our brand, whether it's socks or mugs or whatever. You know, sometimes people laugh at us like, the hell's that got to do with coffee? Well, maybe nothing, but we're giving people an opportunity to fall in love with us. 
mm. which are, which is just cool, and it is a cool brand. So we we have to say that nicely done, well done. Um, so as a as a creative thinker, which is how you described yourself, um, the ability to uh, it's not really a chameleon. It's not like you're putting on a different outfit or costume as you move between these various roles. It's just kind of a morphing and an evolution. Um, it does does this process of creative thinking spill over into other areas of your life? Have you um, are there places where the idea of you know changing and transforming based on what you experience and what you learn is also applicable? Yes, and I have to say it can be very frustrating for people close to me because uh, as a person who loves creative thinking, it means that I will never do the same thing twice. So I'm very unroutined, mm. and uh, I if something has been done well, well, that means we've found that, so now we look for something else. So take music, for example, uh, and I make make music occasionally in, in a former life, not so much these days, but I would, I remember times in the studio where the engineer or the producer, somebody who's a dear friend of both of us, would say, Keating, just was a great take, just do it again, just like that. And I'd say to him through the glass, but I just played it like that and you recorded it, so I'm going to look for something different this time. And he'd tear his hair out, like, I just, I think eventually he sort of became um, used to it and would tolerate it, and perhaps even it was part of what we created together. Mm. But I always look for a better note or a different note or something alternative. It's the same in my cooking. My wife, Beck, will say, oh, I really love it when you make that. Can you do that again? Not as good as last time, Al. It's like, well, did that one last time, so tried something different this time. <laughs> yeah. So it does frustrate people around me. Mm-hmm. Um, I would never, you know, following an agenda is quite difficult for me. Um, the business is trying to grow up and have more process, and so I'm getting out of the way of those people to let that happen because that can be a really effective thing. I just have to get out of the way of the people who are better at that. Which is, I mean, a remarkable sign of maturity, I have to say. <laughs> but, it, I mean, which sounds like a funny thing to say, but um, how insightful to be able to recognise where, in fact, you might be, your way of doing things might, in fact, be the barrier or be the obstacle and therefore to remove yourself rather than to say, no, we've got to figure out a way of doing it that suits me. And so there's a strange duality of, on one hand, let's define how I can be the CEO and, and deliver that kind of vision and leadership, but at the same time, let me figure out when it's appropriate to design mm. things around me and totally. when it's appropriate to yes. design things around the greater good. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and that's why being in a team is amazing and there are people here who love process because process means improvement and consistency. And so I uh, am very happy to hand those things over. There are parts of the business that I, you know, perhaps don't know down to the detail how they run, but that's okay because it's being done by people who do it do that really well. High trust environment, isn't it? It is a very high trust environment. High autonomy here at Supreme and high trust. And so, um, yeah, that's, yeah. Uh, Let's talk about other high trust environments because you uh, have an incredible wife Mm -hmm. and amazing family. Yes. Uh, And you've been, uh, you've got a big wedding anniversary coming up. 
I do. I'll be 18 years married on the 8th of December. <laughs> good, thing, good thing you got the date right. Yes, it's the day after my son's birthday, so I sometimes get them confused. No, we're married 18 years on the 8th of December. So what's it like to be a creative thinker, somebody who never likes to do the same thing twice? Uh, for me or for my wife? Well, for your wife, maybe. <laughs> what, what, have you learned along, what have you learned along the way? Oh, you should interview her too because she'd have a very different take on this. Um, she is an amazing woman. She is very routined. She runs an amazing home. I know that sounds like a really dumb thing to say in 2018, but the reality is she runs that thing like a beast. Um, that's a positive thing, by the way. Uh, we work really well together. I think she's, she's in some ways, and I'm going to be self-indulgent here for a minute because you're interviewing me, not her. But she in some ways is like my ballast. Mm. So a ballast is not an anchor because an anchor keeps you in one point. And that is definitely not how our marriage works. Um, ballast is required in sailing to keep a boat upright in strong winds. Mm. But there is um, in sailing still a certain amount of lean or, you know, um, healing, they call it, when the boat leans over, the ship leans over, because that's how you sail effectively. And the ballast keeps the boat upright to keep it safe and keep it on course. And so... Um, Beck's routine and um, reliability, it really does complement me in my crazy, you know, I'm affected by the wind, I have crazy ideas, I'm a massive risk taker, we've got some funny stories about risk and she's quite risk averse so we kind of meet somewhere in the middle like how ballast affects a ship. Did you have to learn how to find those middle points? Absolutely. I can't push her too hard or she freaks out. She does need to give me a certain amount of, you know, so a certain amount of freedom. Not Perhaps freedom is the wrong word, but um, opportunity to take risk mm. and, you know, uh, so, so that I don't become bored or, yeah, so it's been a, yes, we're definitely learning together and over 18 years you learn many many things i still have much to learn about her but i have the rest of her life to do that which is pretty exciting yeah potentially just the rest of your life i wouldn't like to place bets as though it might last longer <laughs> yeah i sort of paused there and i was like do i say my life or her life because my life yeah it's an interesting one isn't it our well, lives mm -hmm. i have the rest of our marriage there you go and marriage really is uh, a, a lifetime commitment to getting to know somebody and helping them become the best version of themselves. So mm. that's what we're working on. <laughs> <laughs> she, she has um, a lot more work than I do. What do you think creative thinking or that ability to see and recognise ideas and string them together. How do you think that's, that's had an impact or, um, or helped, or maybe not helped, um, the way that you do life outside of the business? Because I think sometimes we have this idea that, that if we are creative people that, that we apply that to vocation um, and then 
we just kind of fit in with the with the rest of everything else but yeah totally i i'm i'm so fortunate i don't um put on an outfit to go to work in i just wear what i wear in my normal life to work that seems trivial but i guess it's uh i'm sort of referencing more than just what i wear on my back you're perhaps making a metaphor i'm using a metaphor tash I am me everywhere, at work, in my family, with my friends, with my children. I was on school camp last week with my with Johnny, my 11-year-old boy. It was so awesome. And I got all these cards. They're actually in my jacket over there. I've got them in my pocket because I just couldn't part with them this morning. They were given to me this morning. These cards are from my group of 10 children that I was given at camp to oversee. We um, were given, our team name was called Rimu, uh, which is a New Zealand native tree for those listening who don't know what that means. And uh, we were team Rimu, we created a chant, we were fiercely competitive. And I got all these cards, it was camp was two and a half days and we went down to South Auckland to a YMCA camp, which was um, super outdoorsy. We went tramping, we did like big military style confidence course, abseiling, mud. It was amazing. I had a great time. And these 10, 10 kids who were all sort of 10 and 11 wrote me these cards to say, thanks, Mr. Keating. And as I read the cards, I realized, ah, oh, without, I had no intention of I'm sort of being this person for them. I was just myself. But mm. all of the cards reflected really awesome things. They said, thanks for your humour, which kept us laughing for two and a half days. And thanks for encouraging us. I did things I would never have done if you hadn't pushed me. And um, thanks for helping us win, because I'm fiercely competitive. And I think we're the only team to sort of do fist pumps and shout out Team Rimu and all this kind of jazz. <laughs> but the cards sort of reminded me, oh, those those are what I bring. And as a creative thinker, that's perhaps not what you'd expect from a parent help on school camp, discipline, order, making sure kids don't fall off cliffs or whatever. But I encouraged people to do more than they turned up to do. And we just laughed the entire time and we beat the other teams and we we actually beat the other teams at stuff because I am so competitive and I push them so hard. <laughs> but they were really appreciative and it just made me think, yeah, that's what I do. And as a creative thinker, you can do that in business or you can do that on school camp, you know? Mm-hmm. And do you see that the reflection of that same humour, encouragement, competitive edge when you come back into the office where we are today at, you know, sort of Supreme Auckland HQ? A hundred percent. That's I think if you stepped out those doors and asked the crew out there and anywhere in the business, they would probably name those three things as my, you know, it's my modus operandi. So, so talking about uh, that competitive edge, what are some of the wins that that really um, that have that have made a difference or an impact on you that you kind of chalk up as yeah, that's something I feel really proud of in terms of um, either your vocational endeavours or you know wherever. Um, I have really long-lasting friendships. That's perhaps not a competitive thing, but it is something that I uh, see as winning in life. Not tons of friends, but a a few good ones. Mm. Um, That's winning. Um, you're, You're sitting at my sort of desk. 
I'm, I'm perched at the end of a long table because I don't actually have a desk or an office at the moment and I've never fancied having one but they are going to build me one apparently. Sitting on this desk is very unintentionally the Metro magazine which comes out I think I think it's like well it comes out often but every year on Labour weekend they print the top 50 cafes in Auckland. Mm -hmm. This is a measure for me that has become a measure for Supreme of how we're doing in our industry because the top 50 cafes in the Auckland area used to have no Supreme supplied cafes in it mm -hmm. and now it has many. So now we can we measure success based on how many more than the other coffee companies have. I know it sounds ridiculous, but I actually have been consumed by this for my career and I count them and tally them and I could show you graphs showing our count versus our competitors count. And we have really awesome relationships with the cafes we supply and we give lots of praise and whenever they get into the Metro Top 50 they get a, you know, something awesome. It used to be for years um, a hunk of meat. Mm because I would send a card saying, congratulations, you made the cut. Natalie has um, taken over doing this because she now oversees the Auckland team, so she now gives them um, natural wine because that's what the kids are into these days. So, But that's definitely a measure of our success is how we're tracking in the Metro Top 50. Mm -hmm. It is the gospel according to Metro, and I realise that it's not the gospel, but it's it's something. So, yeah, that's it. an example. That's cool. Uh, one of the things that I think it's almost uh, it's almost a trope. It's so cliche, but I do love to ask people who are both leaders and creatives about um, uh, moments of failure or I wish I'd done that better. Uh, is there anything that that sticks as a as an ongoing lesson? I've definitely had failures in business. Um, I mean, I can think of a few good examples. We've, one example, and I've wrote something about this a little while ago um, which I think has been the most read thing on our company blog we opened a cafe in Britomart that was called Supreme Seafarers and it was you know it was at a time when we were kind of looking at doing something down there but I got swept up in who the neighbours were going to be and the opportunity in front of us without getting the full team behind it and going through a solid process. So the result was we ended up in a space that we couldn't fully control because we were on the ground floor of a building that was going to be used at all hours and so we, had, we couldn't fully control our space. We were basically parked in somebody's front doorway. There was no sunshine, it was a really windy street, there was no parking. It was in Britomart, which funnily enough is on the front of this Metro magazine in front of me, but that's our site right there. <laughs> <laughs> is it there just to taunt you? That, that was our site next door to Zambezi. Um, those guys are going strong. So we just failed to learn from previous mistakes and tick really necessary boxes. Mm. And so as a result, we rushed into this thing. We had an eight-week deadline to design and build. I got partnered with an architect that was... Um, super talented but we just didn't connect over this particular project um, the budget blew out and it became a really difficult thing to manage and after I think we kept it afloat for four years and we eventually 
cut the rope and let it go down. That's a massive fail for me because I was behind that and I was overseeing it at the time. So one thing I learned from that was get on with failing. Mm. And if you're going to fail, that's cool. Just acknowledge that you're failing. And if you're informing your teammates that you've had a fail, because someone said to me, oh, you know, how did you tell your staff that it was failing? And I thought, if I have to tell my staff that it's failing, then I've already failed, because if they have no idea, then that's a terrible team. The team that finds out they've lost when the whistle goes is not a great team, right? Mm. They all know they're losing. So we acknowledged that together made a decision and got on with it. And that was probably the only win in the whole situation was that we acknowledged the fail. Mm. But it was a pretty tough loss. We, we lost a lot of money and we lost some face because we had to close the doors and make people redundant. And that's hard. Yeah, anytime you have to deal with people. Yeah. yeah. Uh, one last question before we wrap up. The, You've spoken about not being a person of routine and about not being a person of um, of regularity. You know, you don't like to do the same thing over again. But I am curious as to whether or not there's a creative practice or creative practices, things that you do um, irregularly or otherwise, or things that you would attribute to um, helping you stay um, fresh or engaged, um, helping you to learn, um, helping you to reflect, you know, whatever those whatever those practices are that help that help you keep your mind. Um, I'm really open to others' opinions. I um, know that I don't know everything. So rowdy out there. <laughs> I think happy hour starting without us. Happy hour started without us. Um, so I am always really open to the opinions of others and having input from others and. Someone once said to me that leaders are readers, but I don't lo actually love reading. I have difficulty sitting down for that long to focus on a book. But what a book is, is sustained openness to the opinion of someone else. So for me, my version of reading a book is listening, learning to listen carefully in conversation whether that's in a podcast, whether that's with somebody that I trust who's a mentor or somebody who's been ahead of me in industry or personal life or whatever. So that's definitely something that I have focused on being better at is listening carefully. Listening is not preparing your response. It is listening silently. And I've definitely learned that one and have tried in my teams over the years to encourage people they will joke about this, but I have this thing called the two-second rule where you wait two seconds when the person stops talking, that's when you're allowed to start talking. So it means that you can't cut somebody off if you're waiting two seconds for them to finish talking. And that really is my way of making sure that I'm listening and thinking about what they've said. You can apply that to a book or a conversation. That explains many of the conversations that I've had with you over the years. That two-second rule, never knew it before. But there we go. Ah. I can apply that. You thought that I wasn't listening, eh? And that I was staring out the window thinking about something else. But I was actually waiting for you to finish. No, actually I just thought that I hadn't, that I hadn't obviously articulated, articulated myself clearly. But no, you were just waiting to listen. I love it. I think that's a, that's a real male thing too. Um, 
Can I generalize grossly? Please. You, I only like gross generalizations. You, you can smash me in the mouth if I'm wrong. Women process vocally, verbally, together, talking. Men process in silence. So when a man is saying little, sometimes he's thinking about what you've just said. And so I, this is something Beck and I have learnt, my wife and I, that she'll continue to talk because I'm not talking. <laughs> but I'm like, I'm just thinking about what you've just said. So, <laughs> Do you end up with twice as much to think about by the time she runs out of words? I have a lot to think about with Beck, yeah. Mm. <laughs> uh, it's been such a pleasure, Al. Thank you for taking time to join us. Um, if people want to check out your amazing work, is the best place coffeesupreme.com? I think so, yes. And there's social media and all of that jazz. Yeah. All the things. All and the things. Uh, next time you were close to a Coffee Supreme cafe, make sure to go and uh, grab yourself a cup. Um, do you have a f- particular favourite uh, blend product at the moment? Um, yeah, what am I? We're actually working on something really amazing at the moment that I won't mention, but it will be um, coming to light very shortly. I love to drink anything that's interesting, whether it's other people's coffee or our own. Um, you know, my lack of routine probably is a part of that. But I, I honestly will try everything. Um, I don't have something that I reach for continually. There are things that I don't like in coffee, mm-hmm. and so I steer clear of those. Um, I sometimes end up drinking them because I'm unaware, but... I don't like natural coffees. I don't know if you know about that whole thing, but it's like yeah, sort yeah, of yeah. funky flavors. Mm. I don't like that. But I do like very um, crisp washed coffees. And I mostly like coffee in a great place where there's been hospitality. So I'd rather have a shitty coffee with a great friend with great service than the most stunning cup from somebody pretentious or boring company. I can't think of a better way to say goodbye. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening to this episode of The Transformationist. We hope that the journey doesn't stop here. For more information about this episode and materials we referenced, please visit thetransformationist.org or join the Facebook group for more conversation about this week's episode. Just search for The Transformationist by Tash McGill on Facebook. This episode was written and produced by Tash McGill with production support from Truthwork Media and music is by Hans Van Vliet. The Transformationist is brought to you by Solar Feeder Consulting and TashMcGill.com. <laughs> <laughs>